26. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you have forget, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Natalie. Welcome again to the family. Kiddos can head downstairs. Let me uh, pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you for just the glory it is to gather as uh, your church family. We, we gather under Jesus Christ in, in no other name, and we, gra- we gather because Jesus has enabled us to. You've called us to, into your family through, through his name, through his blood, and through his resurrection. Father, would you be... Be with us as we uh, dive into his instruction on prayer. Would you draw us deeper into the reality that you are our Father? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last, late last year, God blessed us with a precious little bundle uh, of joy named Johnny. He's in the back looking very dapper, if you haven't seen him yet. Uh, Mom's been having some fun shopping, I guess. Uh, in, 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 all the, in all the joy of, of having Johnny in our family, he hasn't been sleeping super great, and so Camille and I have kind of divvied up baby duty at night, so some, one of us is getting a little bit of sleep, and uh, one morning, uh, Camille graciously let me not have baby duty, and so I was sleeping in the, in the guest bedroom, and she came in uh, like maybe four or five, and you were just kind of at her wit's end, because homeboy was mad for some reason. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Uh, and she's like, I'm, I'm done. Can you just take him? And so Johnny and I went upstairs, and we, he, was, he was still cuddly and, and tired enough where we just sat and we read some books uh, together, some kid books, and he was riveted by all the plot lines in those. And, uh, and then we did some tummy time on the floor, uh, and then I got him to belly laugh by how I wiggled his legs. And, uh, and then Camille woke up, and I went to work, and uh, I tell this story, and you're probably sick of my dad's stories, uh, but I'm not going to lie, I love to tell them. And I know they're not extraordinary, but I tell you this, it was like an hour or two that I had with John early in the morning, uh, where I just delighted to be his dad. And I tell that story because the number one thing I hope you walk away with as we look at prayer is that God is our Father, that all of prayer hinges on this one reality that God is her Father, and with a hundred times, a million times more love and delight than I have in John, he looks at all of us who are in Christ. If you hear nothing else, that hear that our prayer life is only as rich and meaningful and vital and vibrant as the, the knowledge and the, the reality that we live in, the experience that God in Christ is our Father. 
which is to say that prayer is essentially a relational action. It's a relational practice. So if prayer is a struggle for us, if we don't like it, or we just don't really think about it or care about it, uh, if it seems just kind of out of touch with our real life, then it means there's a relational issue. That your real life, your daily grind, is more defined by other things than the reality of God as our Father. And this is not to make any of us feel guilty, but rather to be kind of a diagnostic. It's like a scan you might get to see if you are sick. You don't feel guilty if you get a scan and show an issue in your physical body. You're thankful that now you know what it is and you can get treatment. And so when we look at the state of our prayer life, we look at how we feel towards it, what our posture is. Is it something like broccoli, prayers, like vegetables? We know we need it, but we don't like it. And so we, every you know, couple weeks we make a commitment to try to be better. But a weak prayer life is ultimately a symptom, and the underlying problem is a limited or weak understanding of God as our Father. We, most of us, that's probably not new information, that God is our Father. But it's the question of, is it the reality that we're living in? And so as we move through Jesus' instruction on prayer, which, man, praise God that Jesus was like, hey, I'm God in the flesh, pray like this. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to figure it out. As we move through this instruction, I want us to keep in mind our earthly fathers and what our relationship was like him. Because one truth of life, I believe, is that how we relate is how we relate. And so, for better or worse, our earthly fathers are going to influence the way we think of God, our heavenly father. So keep, keep that in mind as, as we go. And this is good things that our earthly fathers might have shown us, and then because they aren't God, because they are sinners, they're inevitably going to have let us down in some way, shape, or form. And this morning, Jesus is going to build us a house of prayer. Not an international house of prayer, not IHOP. Uh, just a normal house of prayer. Uh, he lays a foundation, then he builds the structure, the walls and the roof, and then he gives us, gives us a key. So we're going to fill out that, that simple little drawing I made on Microsoft Word this week, last week. Look at our sermon text, diving straight into verse 9. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The foundation, the beginning, the truth of everything we talk about, again, is the fatherhood of God. God looks at us like I look at Johnny, only perfectly, with perfect love, with perfect power, without any lack or limitations. And Jesus, it's just so fascinating to think about all of Jesus' teaching through this lens of the fatherhood of God. Because right before he gives us these instructions, he gives us kind of two warnings. He shows us what happens when we pray from a place where God is not our father. Which is pretty much every single religion except for Christianity. Look at, let's look at verses 7 and 8. This is the warning right before we, what we just read. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, thinking they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there are many religions out there that believe in a God, believe in prayer, 
believe that their God is powerful. But in, in Christianity, in Christ, by grace, God is our Father, and He knows what we need. And just a fantastic example of what this looks like is in 1 Kings 18. Whenever we can use Scripture to illuminate Scripture, I think it's very helpful. So this is in the Old Testament, back when idolatry and the differences between gods, the, the one true God and these false little g gods, was very, very clear. And so we have Elijah, who's the prophet, he's the servant of the true God, and then we have this whole crew of Baal's prophets. And their tensions had been rising, and finally it comes down to a showdown, where they're going to see which God is true by doing this test. There are going to be two bulls, they're going to put one on each altar, and, one, and they're going to take turns calling and praying to their God to light the, the sacrifice, the bull on the altar on fire. So that's the context. Look what the prophets of Baal do. Look at the, the people serving the false god. It says, They took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. This is super powerful imagery of people desperate for their God to hear them. And then, and then they're covered in blood. They're limping around this altar, covered in blood, raving for their God to hear them. I mean, you gotta love whenever the Bible includes sarcasm. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on the john. Just give him a couple minutes. I love, I love the mockery. Sometimes idolatry should be mocked. But here's the crazy thing about these false prophets is that they had some legitimate faith in Baal. Like they were cutting themselves. They were hurting themselves to try to get this God whom they truly believed in to pay attention to them. They were very earnest, I would say. Have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't matter what you believe spiritually as long as you earnestly believe it or you really believe it? Well, that is not what the Bible says. The amount of our faith is not what matters, but rather it's what our faith is in that matters, what we put our faith in. The prophets of Baal were babbling for hours because they believed that their God could do things, but they didn't see him as a father, so they're trying to get his attention. But what does Jesus say is true about the one true God? In verse 8, because your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is a completely different picture. Guys hollering and hurting themselves. Instead, it's a picture of an attentive present, engaged Father God who knows. He's already there. And so we can talk to him simply and directly. <clears throat> How might earthly fathers affect this? 
Because perhaps we might have fathers that are just incredibly capable. They're, they're powerful, they do stuff. But we didn't necessarily feel noticed. They weren't necessarily present to us. So we felt like we needed to be a certain way or perform a certain way or say certain things to get attention. Like the only way I could get dad to talk to me was to, to talk about his favorite sports teams or something like that. So we might believe that God is powerful, but we don't truly believe or live in the reality that he's our father and that he's with us and that he hears us. And then Jesus shows us a, a, a different breakdown, kind of on the other side of the, the fatherhood of God breakdown in verses 5 and 6. He says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now you'll notice he's talking to the hypocrites in one, and he's talking to the Gentiles, or the pagans in the, the other example. So th this one is kind of more targeted for us church people. We've been told all our lives that God is love, and God loves us, and he's listening But what can happen here, what Jesus is getting at, is that we don't really trust that he has any power. We never say that out loud, but we see it in practice and function with our actions. When we're struggling with emotions, or we're suffering, we're super quick to vent, we're super quick to share them with others, and, and maybe mention them to him, but it's way more about other people seeing us, because God's kind of like, a talk show host always has like an announcer, like a Jimmy Fallon. You know, he's always talking to his announcer. But there's an audience there. Like, it's really for the audience. Like, that's what we're watching. And this is a, a relational breakdown that misunderstands Jesus when he says, Our Father in, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because the foundation of prayer is that God is our Father and that he's holy beyond us. He's in heaven. He's all-powerful creator of the universe. This is who we're addressing. Because yes, he is our father. Yes, right now, he looks on you full of joy and tender affection for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But when this tender father goes to work, it's as the God of the universe. And some of us might have goofball dads that are always kind of struggling. They're really nice and they're fun, but they just always seem to not really have their stuff together. So they're, they're pretty powerless, and you don't really depend on him. Like, you love him, and you honor him, you like him, but you, 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 he's not who you go to when you really need help. This is a point not to rag on our fathers, but just, just ask the question, how might our earthly fathers have influenced the way we, we relate to our heavenly father? The foundation for prayer that Jesus shows us is that God is our heavenly father, who's holy, glorious beyond anything that we can know. And yet he's also our tender, loving Abba Father, who's with us, who sees us, who's gracious and patient with us. And when God's not big, when people, uh, people are big. When God's not big and powerful, that's when others and other people's affirmation becomes more important to us. 
Now that Jesus has laid the foundation for prayer, he gives us the structure of prayer. I'm starting to build our house here. Look in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the structure of prayer has two parts. You can think of it like the walls and the roof. The walls are dependence, and the roof is submission. As we're building our house of prayer, we have two parts. We got walls that are dependence, and then the roof is submission. Now, these are probably the most un-American words that we have in our English language, submission and dependence, because we are all about freedom, independence, autonomy. What is our biggest national holiday? Independence Day. I'm not saying it's bad to celebrate Independence Day, but if we do bring uh, that, that cultural value, deeply entrenched value of autonomy, independence, freedom into our Christian lives, which just by virtue of living in this country, every single one of us has done. It's just our culture. It's like asking a fish if he's wet. He just, it's his, he's where he swims. Then we're going to have issues praying. This is what our house is built on, dependence and submission. And with these words that are so, uh, honestly, probably offensive or at least uncomfortable to us, we've got to be reminded that we're looking at Jesus' invitation to pray according to the way that uh, he, he says we should, not to rain on our Fourth of July parades, but to invite us to flourish. Our series through the Sermon on the Mount is looking at human flourishing. Jesus came to give us life to the full. And so when he says pray like this, he's doing it so that we might flourish. Submission and dependence obviously stems directly from a deep experience with the fatherhood of God. We, we depend and submit to something, to someone. It's the foundation, God our Father. Children are dependent and they're submiss- submissive to their fathers. Of course, they rebel and whatnot. But I think using the language of children and fathers makes sense because no one would look at Johnny or a five-year-old, or even a 15-year-old, and say, you know what, you should really be totally free and independent right now. Because they're children. So this prayer, posture of prayer, is founded on God's fatherhood, and it shapes our heart. When we pray according to Jesus' instructions here, it begins to shape our hearts to delight and flourish in submission and dependence. Look at the submission part in verse 10. Your kingdom come. I love talking about God's kingdom. I'm really trying to rein it in for this sermon. Working definition of God's kingdom is life with God under the rule of God. And you see the relational component there and the submission part, where we are experiencing life with God in his kingdom, but we're also submitting to his rule as the creator of the universe, the inventor of humanity, who knows how humanity is meant to be lived. And, of course, we don't live in a kingdom now. We're a democracy, and democracy is great. But I would propose to you that democracy is a result of the fall. The reason why we have democracy to distribute power in our government is because of sin, because of the fall, because of the brokenness of the world, because of the lack of one person who could rule everything perfectly. So we've we got to spread it out. 
But Scripture would say that we as humans are longing for one true king that will restore everything. And that's Jesus. And so when we pray, Jesus uh, calls us to align our hearts with this truth that God is king, that he's the ruler, that his kingdom is where everything flourishes as it should. We pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven because that's the goal. That's the vision that we have as Christians. Everything being fully brought into submission to Christ. It says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's real tricky to talk about God's will. It's a very big issue and we always get uncomfortable. But the crucial element we're going to talk about today is submission. Because here's, here's what the heart of uh, prayer is behind the submission. Because we're saying, when we say, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, Father, I will obey your word in everything. Even if I don't like it. I'll accept everything you send my way, even if I don't understand it. As we imagine a seven-year-old boy riding in the car with his dad, and they park in front of their house, and he's like, Dad, let me drive. Can I drive now? Can I take it around the block for a spin? And he says, well, little buddy, you know, your feet won't reach the pedals. You can't see over the steering wheel. And then just developmentally, your reflexes aren't there to make good choices when, when driving. So no, you can't. And the kid might be disappointed and upset, but most kids will probably have some element of understanding that, you know, adults are here and I'm a kid, like there's a difference. And so even though he doesn't like it, he knows, there's, he knows there's a difference. And so, you know, he gets out of the car and goes into the house and gets a hug and a cookie from his mom. You know, it's, life really isn't that bad for a kid. But I'm sure you've met kids that will wait till dad's not looking steal the keys, turn the car on, put it in gear, and kill themselves. The Bible says we're all like that second kid. We don't submit to God. He's the creator and we are the creature, which is why the good news of the gospel is that we can repent of all our key stealing and submit and flourish, get a hug and a cookie. Jesus' prayer invites us to eat the cookie of submission. So we can be honest with their father. I want to drive. I don't understand. I don't like it. I want to do this. But your will be done. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying, hold on tight. Human flourishing is not found in freedom, but in submission. I do not pretend at all to be living in this reality perfectly, but I see it in Scripture So join me as we explore what this means. Human flourishing is not found in freedom, but in submission. That's the roof. Submission. Look at dependence, verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Human flourishing is found in living in a daily reality that we are dependent on our Father in heaven for everything. Jesus then unpacks all the different angles, all the different facets of what our dependence looks like. We have our daily bread, the basic necessities of life, where we acknowledge when we pray that 
everything we have, the food, the shelter, the money, the clothes, the ability to work, to make the money, the job that we have to work, to make the money, everything that sustains our life comes from our good, good Father. If we think we are self-made, if we think that we have earned everything we have, then it wouldn't be surprising if we have little to no motivation to prayer, that we don't need our Father. And then we're dependent on God for mercy. Forgive us our debts. Our burdened consciousness. When we... Uh, when, we've, when we've done wrong. Part of this flourishing rhythm of prayer is that we are we're reminded that we're not perfect, that we need God's mercies anew every morning, that we're dependent on God for that. This is not a, we repented when we were nine, and now we're good to go until we get to heaven. But it's a daily ongoing uh, asking for forgiveness and glorying in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. As we have also forgiven our debtors. And this connection, man, we could spend so much time talking about this. Seeking forgiveness for ourselves and then the horizontal forgiveness that we have with others. So we're dependent for forgiveness for ourselves. And then we are also dependent on God for the ability to forgive those who have wronged us. Forgiveness is never a switch that you can just be challenged to white knuckle and flip. Like, okay, boom, now I've forgiven you. But as it comes up, we daily ask God to help us forgive our debtors. And we're dependent for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're asking for strength and protection to, uh, to, to deliver us from the things that would draw us away from living as God's children. Evil is living for ourselves. Evil is selfishness. So we ask God to, to lead us not into temptation. And we can think of this in terms of, you know, the sins that we Baptists love to hit, hit on, you know, getting drunk or drugs or sexual morality, and those, and those are sins. But I think more sneaky ones that we need protection for are seeking to do spiritual things with worldly power. Lead us not into temptation of thinking that we don't need God because we have our ducks all in a row. And then Jesus ends this little lesson on prayer with a strange excursus into forgiveness. Look at verses 14 and 15. It's almost like he is like revisiting it. He talks about forgiveness, and he talks about temptation. Then he goes back to forgiveness. He's like, you know, I need to hit back on this again. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What is he getting at? It's a little uncomfortable because on first blush it seems like if we forgive, then we like earn God's forgiveness. We need to go out and make sure we're forgiving, make sure we get it. But that's not what he's saying. Most commentators un- understand it to mean this. You can't stay angry. You can't withhold forgiveness towards someone unless you think you're better than them. Unless you think you have some moral high ground to stand on and look down at them. Which highlights the breakdown 
for what is most true about us in Christ, which is that we are forgiven sinners, beloved by grace, saved as a child of God into the family of God by grace. The only reason we can call God Father, that we can know any of the goodness of life with Him, is because we've been forgiven. And so we see that this grace-based relationship with our Father overflows into our horizontal relationships. That one of the signs that we have been forgiven, one of the signs that we've experienced the gospel, is that we have hearts that at least show up to the work of forgiveness. So one of the biggest obstacles, I think, in living in the reality of God as our Father is that we know how much of a mess we are. Because I've talked to people, and most people respond pretty well to this idea of God as our Father, and, you know, it's just it's something so normal, you know, the, the father-son or daughter relationship and plenty of tear-jerking country songs about it. But it, but it seems like, yeah, that's great. Those are cute stories about Johnny, but wait till he has body odor and is 15 and hates and say, everything you do and say. You know, then let's talk about this tender fatherly love then when he's, when he's not a little precious baby. When, it, you ask, when I've asked some Christians about their testimony, it comes across like, oh, my Christian testimony is, is just really marked with guilt. Or my testimony is that at this date, I prayed the prayer, and every day I try to be a little better than the day before. Or there's this paradigm where, like, God is so good. He is so amazing, so loving, and I am just pathetic. But he still loves me somehow. Do, do, do any of those testimonies sound like beloved children? I live in guilt, or I'm striving to try to be better or I just can't believe God tolerates me every day. If we heard that coming from our children, I don't think any parents would be like, oh good, that's the exact dynamic I want to have in our, in our relationship. So there's a, a question underneath all this talk of prayer. How can I be sure that God loves me like a father? What, what, is, what, what is the foundation of God's fatherhood consists of? What is, it, what is it built out of? What are the cinder blocks of it? Well, this is the key to the house of prayer, which is the cross. Jesus didn't just tell us this way to pray. He himself prayed this way in the most important moment in history. He was approaching the hour of his death. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying so hard, he was sweating blood. Anybody else prayed that hard? Me neither. He saw what he was about to go through, the incredible pressure of what was coming. He got alone with God and he prayed. This is Matthew 26, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you see his Lord's Prayer, the, the ultimate display of submission? Is there another way? Please, I don't want to do this. 
but not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. Because I am your son, I trust your goodness. And after he submitted to his father's will, one of his closest friends betrayed him. This is Jesus. They betrayed him. He was falsely accused of all things that he, all kinds of things he didn't do. He was beat and whipped until the skin was ripped off his back and he was nailed to a cross of wood. And then he finishes the Lord's prayer with what? What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He finishes the Lord's prayer with the ultimate forgiveness. He was the only person who never needed to pray, forgive my debts, because he was perfect. But he shows us the gracious forgiveness in the heart of our Father when he took on our debts in himself, our key-stealing and rebellion, our idolatry of freedom and independence, and he paid for it. So now the Father can forgive us. So now there's nothing but fatherly love for you and me if we hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we've ever done to feel guilty, everything we've ever done to hurt people, all of our sense of failings is taken away because Jesus lived out the Lord's prayer in the garden and on the way to the cross. So now we can have immovable confidence in the Father's love for us because he didn't spare his own son. And the Holy Spirit does the miracle. This is a gift of grace we receive of opening our heart to this glorious reality that the life we can live right now because of what Jesus did, it transforms us. It, it roots us and grounds us into immovably loved, grateful, joyful children of the God of the universe. He, he can redeem our experience of our earthly father through the gospel. And grows us into his children who are quick to forgive, who trust our Father joyfully for all our needs. I have two applications for you this week to consider. The first one is to spend, spend some time in the Lord's Prayer. A, a really helpful practice to do is to write out each line of the Lord's Prayer and then just sit with it or, or journal it in your own words. Just let, let this pattern of prayer shape us. And I think we see in the Psalms that you, know, you can move the elements of it around. Sometimes it doesn't follow this order exactly. But I think this order here is beautiful and I think it will shape our hearts. Maybe not the first time you do it, but as we get to the habit of turning our eyes to our Father, of worshiping Him, of submitting and depending, we'll see, we'll see all kinds of growth. And the second thing, maybe as you're doing that, as you pray that first line, our Father in heaven, is ask the Holy Spirit to show how your earthly father shaped your relationship with God. Because some of our dads have done great things, I know mine has, to show us the character of God, just unbelievable displays of grace and, and love. And then all of us, because our dads weren't perfect, have some ways that is twisted, some more than others. 
So ask, ask God to, to show that to you and to heal that in you because he can in Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I praise you for the incredible, glorious grace it is to be able to call you Father. I thank you for the work that you did through Jesus on the cross to bring us into your family. And I pray, Father, that you and your mercy would do the miracle in drawing us deeper into that experience of knowing you as our Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would open our, our hearts and minds to see you in all your glory, see you in all your hallowedness. I pray, Father, that you would search us and know us and show us broken places where our earthly Father experience has, has limited or boxed in our experience of you as our Father. I pray for healing. I, pr- I pray for uh, just the, the freedom it is to surrender all that to you. Father, would we be uh, a praying church, not because we white-knuckle prayer, but because it flows out of us because we love you and we feel your love as our Father. Do this miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing, There is a